Good evening and welcome to our second talk in the series of Tut Talks. Um, my name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the gallery. And I am especially delighted tonight to welcome Dr. David Silverman. Um, Dr. Silverman is serving as the National Curator, Advisor, and Academic Content Creator for Tutankhamun, the Golden King, and the Great Pharaohs. The capacity he also serves for Tutankhamun and the Gold of Age of the Pharaohs. In the 1970s, Silverman was in charge of curatorial content for Treasures of Tutankhamun at Chicago's Field Museum. I don't know how many of you came here in 1979 and saw the first touch show. Yes, I did too. Presently, Dr. Silverman is the Eckley B. Cox Jr. Professor and Curator at the University of Pennsylvania. He has written numerous publications, and if I read them all out, then you know we wouldn't have time for his lecture, but there are 12 books, 85 articles on religion, art, and ancient Egyptian grammar. So those of you who came last week, I said, please come with all your questions, because this is the man who can answer them. So I hope you've come with some difficult ones. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, and I must say, it's a, a big surprise because it's actually uh, warmer here than it was in Philadelphia when I left this morning. It's a very pleasant surprise, as a matter of fact. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about tonight uh, is the unity of art and writing in ancient Egypt. And um, it's a subject that I'm really very interested in. And I think. Uh, one, if you've been to the exhibit, then um, you'll uh, understand a lot of what I'm saying. If you haven't been, then you certainly will understand more uh, of the exhibit when you get a chance uh, to see it. Obviously, these aren't uh, ancient Egyptian uh, uh, representations, but I thought I would show you some of the other cultures that uh, have a close connection between art and writing. Uh, there are Mayan hieroglyphs on the left, and then there's the Book of Kells on the right, where um, the Irish interlace is, uh, <clears throat> is being used there as decorative purposes, uh, but it also plays a role in the writing. Um, on the left, uh, you see how calligraphy is so important in Islamic uh, writing and Islamic art. And then on the right, something that is uh, on the Penn campus, uh, Robert Indiana's uh, love statue, and the the message here is actually the text itself. So the uh, connection between art and writing is uh, something that we all understand today, but it really does go back probably uh, to the first uh, the first examples of it uh, in ancient Egypt. We're going to be uh, talking about uh, a variety of different places in Egypt. So I provided a map on the left side. And then on the right, um, you can see some of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, and these date to about uh, 2000, 1900 uh, uh, BC. Uh, some of the areas we're going to be talking about are in the north, uh, right outside of Cairo, and that is Giza, uh, Saqqara, um, Abu Sir. And then uh, we'll be talking about some uh, uh, down here in this area, some at Aswan, Thebes, uh, and then Abydos, certainly, and then one right over here, Amarna, and that's the uh, capital city where Tutankhamun was actually born. But on the right here, I want you to uh, really to pay special attention because these are ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, these are signs that represent um, sounds, and um, 
you'll notice that you can see the elbow of a figure who is um, right nearby. But right next to the, the elbow, there is uh, what appears to be a basket. And I don't know how well you can uh, see this, but the actual uh, reeds are visible in this basket. This is a representation of two letters, N and B. Uh, it's pronounced Neb. So there's an ancient Egyptian word, but uh, even, uh, as I said, you can see all the details in it, and it's no less detailed than the figures themselves. Now, if I move back more than 2,000 years earlier, um, you can see that uh, Egyptian writing uh, and Egyptian art basically looks the same. I think Egyptian art... Uh, really develops out of rock carvings which uh, date maybe uh, another 2,000 years earlier. And it's basically very two-dimensional. So what you're looking at um, on the top and the left are actually ivory tags dating to about 3300 BCE. And these may actually represent the earliest writing known to humankind. Um, there is an argument going on between Egyptologists and uh, scholars in Mesopotamia. Um, actually, it's been going on for as long as I uh, have been in the field and certainly a lot earlier. Um, just depends on which day of the week, which month of the year, uh, as to which one actually has the first writing. Uh, for my entire graduate uh, school career, uh, Mesopotamia had it. Uh, about uh, 12 years ago, uh, working in Abydos, uh, German scholar Gunter Dreyer discovered the, all of these ivory tags, which he now feels are actually examples of writing, and can point out several of them that uh, several of the signs that are on these that actually come into ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs very shortly uh, uh, after this. So that this is the earliest of the writing. Uh, on the on the bottom. When you see uh, over here, we're already into the pharaonic period, so we're talking about you know maybe another 200 years. This uh, is uh, an ivory tag also, uh, but this one has the name of the king. It shows a scene of the king uh, in a throne, walking down the steps, and then uh, performing uh, a ritual, which is called uh, a jubilee ritual. And so you've got narrative art already, and it looks exactly the same as the... Um, the proto-writing that you see uh, in, this, in the tiny little ivory tags. These ivory tags um, may have been from tribute throughout the country from other areas, and then they were put in the royal tomb uh, as uh, markers from where this material uh, had originally derived so that the purpose of the writing is even known. Around 3100, we get the first of the major narrative art, and you can see that the writing is already fully formed and is really on the same lines as the two-dimensional uh, uh, writing and art are basically now uh, amalgamated in such a way that they're going to be for the next 3,000 years. And if you doubt me, then you look on the right and you see a smiting king. You look on the left, you see a smiting king. The one on the left is 3,100. The, the one on the right uh, is about um, uh, 2,600 years later. 
So uh, the consistency is quite remarkable. Uh, the way the things, uh, the way the writing is done is quite remarkable. Uh, but I won't go into uh, all of the changes that occur in grammar over the years. Believe me, the Egyptians uh, did have grammar, and anyone who's taken ancient Egyptian with me knows that I'm a stickler for grammar. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have um, uh, several graduate students who are finishing up their dissertations now, and the first thing I tell them is before they hand in uh, anything to me, they have to run it through a grammar check in Word, make sure everything is, uh, is okay, no split infinitives, as few passive voices as possible, and try to get all the commas right. I'm that bad in Egyptian grammar as well. And believe me, they had those kind of rules uh, as well. Now, these aren't ancient Egyptian, but they can uh, show you the, that uh, some of the legacy of ancient uh, Egypt into uh, closer to our own time, and this is um, what we call Egyptomania. And um, those of you who remember King Tut in the, in the 80s here at the AGO, we had it in the late 70s in the United States. That was my first job, and it was exciting not only because of uh, everyone coming to see the exhibit, but also exciting because there was this um, uh, incredible interest in Egypt and all sorts of things were happening. Well, uh, after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, that's when Egyptomania hit Europe, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But here are some of the things. You have this magnificent clock on the left-hand side uh, with Egyptianizing figures. And then I think this is one of my favorites. This is a very good French perfume in uh, like a lolly um, uh, glass <clears throat> container. Uh, but um, you've you have an opportunity to see these types of things in, in, in museums now with Egyptian art because this is actually a full-scale uh, representation from one of the canopic jars, and these were the things in which uh, the lungs, the liver, the stomach, and the intestines of the individuals were. So to have perfume in there seems to be sort of odd. Maybe it was sort of like formaldehyde to keep them uh, well-preserved. Um, I guess I should also tell you about uh, the last of the hieroglyphs uh, because um, I've given you sort of a little summary of what happens uh, with hieroglyphs and uh, what they were used for. Uh, but what you see in the top is uh, a temple uh, at Philae. And um, for those of you uh, who are interested in Cleopatra, by the way, she, uh, uh, there is a representation of one of the Cleopatra figures uh, on this temple. But important for our discussion is the one on the bottom. And these are the last hieroglyphs ever written in Egypt. Um, so we're talking about having started out at about 3300 BCE. And we go to almost 4,000 years later, and we get uh, this inscription. And it's very likely by this time, uh, around the 4th century AD, uh, that no one any longer except a few priests knew how to read the language. And at this point, it pretty much disappears um, from, uh, from the world and is not known uh, by anybody. And from that time on, ancient Egyptian uh, language was referred to as uh, picture writing uh, or symbolic writing, uh, the clues for which nobody uh, really had. 
And uh, the man who dispelled the myths, uh, or at least the man who got the credit for it, is Champollion. And we're talking about 1820, so we're going another, uh, say, 1,300, 1,400 years before the, the key to what these inscriptions really meant uh, is found. And up until that time, uh, hieroglyphs were understood uh, just like the Greek translation, sacred writings, or they were mystical, and people thought they had uh, all sorts of uh, interesting meanings. Uh, basically, nobody really knew what they meant. But it was... Um, was a combination of three people. There was a Swede, uh, there was an Englishman, and there was Champollion, all of whom figured this out at pretty much the same time, which was pretty remarkable. So the, uh, the Rosetta Stone gets discovered uh, during uh, Napoleonic um, expeditions to Egypt. It's brought back, uh, it's uh, photographed, and it gets out in, to everyone, and three people figure it out pretty much at the same time. Champollion got it published first, and he's the one whose name is remembered all the time. So the inscription, as you can see, uh, has three sections. The top is hieroglyphs. Uh, the, the second is uh, demotic, the, one of the last phases of Egyptian writing written during... Um, Cleopatra's time, and then down here it's written in Greek. It's the same inscription written in all three languages. Uh, the brilliance of Champollion and the two others uh, were that they figured out that this was not symbolic writing, it was actually an alphabet, and it was an alphabetic writing. And what, he, what uh, Champollion noticed was that wherever there was this oval that you see on the left, um, there were different, two different kinds, uh, two different um, series of hieroglyphs in each one of them. And they corresponded to where in the Greek text would be the name of Ptolemy, who was uh, the name of the rulers of uh, the last dynasty of Egypt, or Cleopatra, the names of the queens uh, who uh, ruled alongside. And once they figured that out, they counted the letters, and it came out that they, they had all of the letters that they needed, and he began to realize that this was uh, pretty much an alphabetical language. Um, so very quickly, they, uh, they were able to come up with, like we have, uh, not 26 letters, but 24 letters of single sound um, representations. Unfortunately, for us who studied the language, they, the Egyptians didn't stop there. Then they had pictures, excuse my uh, really uh, primitive drawings there, uh, but the ones on the left are what we call biliterals. Uh, each of these pictures represents two sounds. And then on the right we have triliterals, and each of those represent three sounds. Uh, I put the English equivalent, so that's uh, sort of cheating a little bit. But many of you may uh, already know the Ankh sign, which is uh, the ancient Egyptian word for life, but it's used uh, as well uh, in other words. So when push comes to shove during most periods, you have about 600 signs you have to learn. Uh, if you really are ambitious, you can work in the Ptolemaic period where there are 4,000. Not that many people work in that period. Um, there are other sound, there are other uh, hieroglyphs too that are important to know, and uh, they're called determinatives. These are more or less ideograms that help us distinguish uh, what the words really mean. Because uh, ancient Egyptian writing was a shorthand writing; uh, it's very cumbersome. You're writing in stone, so it's uh, you know they were taking shortcuts. They didn't put any of the vowels in. Uh, 
Vowels are uh, the part of a language that change. The consonants are uh, uh, permanent. So the Egyptians decided to leave out the vowels, and in fact this is not unusual because both Hebrew and Arabic do the same thing. Uh, so what you're looking at on the left is a determinative uh, that would be put at the end of a word that would have to do uh, either with um, a man or something to do um, with uh, a human activity. And this might be put uh, after a couple of alphabetical signs to distinguish it from any other word so that you wouldn't get confused. So you might know the first three letters of a, uh, or two letters of a word, for example, like S and L in English. And, you know, it could be a whole host of words like uh, seal and sail and soul and solo. And how would you distinguish in English if you only had S and L? And one of the ways is you put a little dollar sign after it. And then so that's our determinative. That tells you that it should be spelled S-A-L-E. So in any case, I put a whole bunch of these so that you would see. There are uh, about 75 of them, and you see some of them uh, on the right-hand side. So, for example, um, if we were to uh, talk about um, uh, right over here, this is an, uh, one of those determinatives that refer to military people. Here is a, a word that's spelled out. This is a P, this is an A sign, this is a T. And this word altogether means the wealthy people and the way that we don't just uh, make a mistake and translate as something else. We have a man right after it. So it's very, very important. Here is the word for mother, and we don't just, uh, screw it up and read it as vulture because we have a little woman after it. Not that any mothers are vultures. Uh, uh, let me just go back um, there. On, on the right-hand side, just to show you, here we have uh, uh, raised relief, and it's painted, and this, it's a wooden uh, <clears throat> surface, and then it's carved away in glass inlays. So it's really quite incredible, and, and I'm showing it to you in this way because I want you to be able to appreciate that each individual sign is still a work of art. Still hieroglyphs. Uh, these are from the later periods on the left during the Ptolemaic period. This can actually be read. These are all hieroglyphic signs among uh, the 4,000 that you have to learn, as I said. And then on the right here, uh, all of this uh, is part of the, um, the hieroglyphic scene. Now, if we take a look at this, um, you can see how decorative everything is. This is, um, again, raised relief, and then painted. Actually, even all the feathers in uh, the owl's wings are painted, so you can get an idea as to the detail. Uh, everything done in the figure here, even including the uh, pleats in uh, the figure's skirt. If we look over here, this is, uh, this is um, a close-up of another part of that tomb that I showed you in one of the earlier slides. One of my favorites because uh, it comes from the tomb uh, that has that squatting figure in the exhibit. The name is Ihi. And I show it to you because it uh, has that close-up of the basket, and you can see every mark uh, of the reeds that were braided in order to form the basket. 
Um, you can see in the owl on the bottom uh, all the little ticks to indicate the feathers. And then uh, right in front of that is a reed leaf. It's a leaf, and you can see the midrib and all the veining in that. And these are literally only a couple of inches high, but every single hieroglyph was given as much care as the scene itself. Now, ancient Egyptian writing also had um, its not-so-pretty form. And um, just like in English, we have a printed version, the Egyptian, uh, and we have a script version. The Egyptians also had uh, a script version as well. And here you can see on the top, uh, this is called hieratic. This is a sort of a shorthand version again, and this is to be able to write quickly in ink. Uh, on the bottom, hieratic again. Uh, and this is an important one because it's a, a, a map of a gold mine, and so people would take this out with the instructions of how to get there. I thought you'd might, uh, like to see it. Uh, but it actually, it's an interesting uh, composition because it's very much just something that we would have today where you have a map and the legend that goes uh, along with it. In papyrus, we can find both the hieroglyphs and the hieratic, but they are uniquely uh, melded together along with the scenes. So I want to make an analogy here because it's sort of like when we, we uh, look in, uh, in uh, magazines uh, and, and, and in comic books and animated kinds of uh, representations. It's pretty much the way we have it here, and that is that um, the scene itself is really explaining what the hieroglyphs are telling you. And uh, the, uh, what the hieroglyphs are telling you is um, explained by what the scene shows. So they work hand in hand, and they have to. And this is something that's extremely important to remember that we think about uh, when we talk about art and writing. We can read both the art and the text. But in ancient Egyptian times, probably less than 5% of the people, maybe closer to 1%, could read anything. So while it was important to have these things, these were books of the dead. This is what you needed to get into the afterlife. Suppose you couldn't read it. Well, magically, you'd be able to understand it because you had all the representations that went along with it. Now... Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to um, talk to you about also was how the writing gets a little bit blurred in art. And it's going to take, um, take me a minute or two to get, uh, to get to this, but the first one I wanted to show you is a figure from the, 18th, the early 18th dynasty. Uh, that's the time period that Tutankhamun came from. And this is uh, a figure uh, from uh, into Nubia, of someone who was from Nubia but decided that um, he wanted to have an Egyptian-style burial. And so he had everything done as an ancient Egyptian would have, including the statue represented as an ancient Egyptian, not as a Nubian figure. Uh, what is interesting is that his name occurs right over here, and his name is Amenemhat. The last sign in his name is not pronounced. This is a determinative, and it's a determinative of a seated man holding a flail. And this is uh, basically to indicate that that M&M hate is actually his name. So that's what it's telling us. 
If we go back in time to the old kingdom, that was the new kingdom, now we go back to the fifth dynasty, you're going to be entertained by uh, Dr. Zahi Hawass um, in March, and maybe he will actually show you this, but it is upstairs in the exhibit, and it's one of, I think, my favorite pieces, I know it's one of his, and um, it is a figure of man called Kai, and his two children are next to, next to his legs. Um, I happened to be in Egypt at the time that this was discovered uh, in Zahi's um, expedition, and it was quite remarkable uh, for me to watch it as it was being pulled out of the ground. And you can see that there was originally painted a little necklace here, a collar, and when I saw it, as uh, I was asked then to take my camera out, which I went back to get, by the time I got there, which was about 10 minutes, took me 10 minutes to go get the camera, um, the modern air had caused the, uh, the paint to disintegrate. And it just shows you how uh, fragile uh, everything that we have in Egypt really is. So the idea, this is just um, my two cents worth on the exhibition, that uh, the majority of the prophets go back to Egypt to, um, to help with this uh, brand new museum that will house over 100,000 artifacts and preserve them for a long, long time. Well, okay, now back to business. Uh, you'll notice his name is Kai, and this is the K sound. This is the, the uh, an olive which is in the back of the throat going ah, and then a, uh, like our Y, so it's pronounced Kai. And um, there isn't any seated determinative to indicate that's his name, which is very interesting, but this is the way it works in the Old Kingdom because the statue itself is the seated determinative. So we have here the writing in two dimensions, but the determinative, which is also the writing, in three dimensions. So, not as, uh, so we have here uh, the unity of art and writing, but we also have the unity of uh, two-dimensional as well as three-dimensional relief. Also from the Old Kingdom, this is the fourth dynasty, uh, these are quite remarkable figures. Unfortunately, they will never travel outside of Egypt. Actually, maybe for them it's fortunate. But uh, to be able to see these, I mean, they actually look as if they're alive. They're unbelievable. And some of it has to do with the way the, uh, <clears throat> the eyes have been done in a quartz crystal and uh, uh, black glass. <clears throat> it's quartz crystal. It's not black glass. It's a volcanic glass. Uh, because glass hadn't been invented yet. Um, now, the name of the individuals, Rahotep over here and Nofret over here, you'll notice that after Rahotep's name, there's, uh, there's no figure of a seated man. But after Nofret's name, his wife, there is a seated female figure. And the reason that there is one there, and this is the way the rule finally was uh, understood, is that this is his tomb, not her tomb. So he's buried, she's buried in his tomb. So the tomb goes under his name, therefore she is a, a visitor and she has to have uh, her own determinative. And once that rule was discovered, it really helped us because we were able to figure out um, when uh, things get into a museum which haven't been excavated, we know that, uh, that uh, women very often had their own tombs even though we may, never, uh, we may not have found them during a particular period. Here's a close-up of that, so you can see on the right, no fret. You see the seated woman on both sides, and then Rahotep here, 
and here, and he is the determinative. Not only does it work in three dimensions on the statuary, it also works in two dimensions, although it's not quite as consistent. Here is the man's name, Nefer-Iyu. Here is the man's name, Nefer-Iyu. And then it occurs down here uh, as well. And you never find the seated figure because here is a seated figure, here is a standing figure, and that does double duty. Up on the top... His name over here is Min, and no determinative. Over here, Ria, no determinative. And on the right side, we see that he has a determinative in his name. And what's happening is that things are changing, and we have a sloppy scribe. And so what we call a scribal error uh, occurs here, and he didn't follow the rules. Occasionally, that does happen. Now, um, another, another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the connection between the two, uh, you can see here. Now, those of you who saw the Tutankhamun exhibition in the, 70, in, in the 80s here uh, saw this piece. This is the small cartouche-shaped box, and you're looking at both sides of it. Um, on one side, you have... Um, You have re two representations of the child, and here you have two representations of Tutankhamun as an adult. Uh, altogether, uh, there are four representations of him, and so we might say there are four images of him. Uh, the word for image in ancient uh, Egypt is the word cheperu, that's the plural, cheperu. That's important to know because this is actually a cryptographic writing of Tutankhamun's name. So they're using the art here to play a game. Uh, you should have the name of the king in here, but that's not what it looks like. But in fact, it is uh, a cryptographic writing to prevent uh, anyone from realizing that this is his name and for, to prevent anybody from destroying it. Actually, this worked to his benefit because had anyone found it, they certainly would have destroyed it as they did with Akhenaten's name because uh, they were branded as heretics and every uh, opportunity to uh, obliterate their name, the ancient Egyptians did take. So what would his name have actually looked like? His throne name would have looked like this. So you have the sun disk, then you have the beetle, and three plural strokes, which is pronounced cheperu, uh, and then underneath it a basket, which is pronounced neb. So you have uh, neb, cheperu, ray. Now let me just go back. Okay, so you still have the ray element, you have the basket, neb, and instead of having the beetle here, that word means images. You have literally four images. So again, a cryptographic writing, and uh, this is uh, to ensure that his name would exist forever and ever because without that uh, happening, then he doesn't have an afterlife. Cryptographic writing, although it occurs a lot uh, during the reign of Tutankhamun, he must have had a premonition of what was going to happen, it occurs a lot during the reign of Ramses II, 
who has, had seen what it, uh, or knew about what had happened in the past, so he tried to have his name written uh, extremely deeply uh, wherever he possibly could, and since he reigned for 67 years, he had the opportunity to build a lot of buildings and have his name plastered all over or carved all over. One of the largest uh, figures uh, that, he, uh, that he had um, um, shown with himself as a child uh, is actually cryptographic writing of his name. So on the right, we have uh, here um, the sun god, Ray, and then we have the word for uh, the one who bears, and then uh, this tall figure over here uh, represents a pronoun, him. So we actually read that, uh, the one on the right, as uh, Ray is the one who bore him, and that is what Ramses actually means. On the left, instead of having the word, uh, the one who bore him, the one who bore him is actually the child, so they have a cryptographic writing, and there is the child, there is the falcon, there is the sun, and here is that tall figure. This is the uh, actually the direct object, so that, again, is a cryptographic writing in three dimensions to be understood as um, Ray is the one who bore him, and that is the name of um, <clears throat> Ramses, the throne name. Egyptians had, uh, Egyptian rulers had two names, a throne name and, the, and their birth name. Ramses uh, II, as I said, really um, was, uh, went to all ends to make sure that you knew who he was, including uh, these 60-foot-high uh, seated uh, figures at Abu Simbel in the southern part of the country. Uh, he was interested uh, in making sure that his name would last forever, and since he was ruling for what pretty much seemed like forever to everybody, he must have gone through at least uh, two generations of people. Certainly did uh, went through that many wives because he had over 100 children and God knows how many wives. Um, but if we look at this uh, temple at Abu Simbel, uh, the highest part of it actually has another cryptographic uh, representation of his name. So you can see over here, uh, here is the falcon and the sun, which we saw a few minutes ago. And uh, then we have um, two different signs over here. This one is pronounced Usur. This one is pronounced Mat, and this one is pronounced Ray. And again, we have another name of uh, Ramses II. Last but not least, um, we, I'm going to show you one where they actually made, um, they uh, obviously couldn't read it, so they never destroyed it. This belongs to the, the pharaoh, uh, or refers to the pharaoh Hatshepsut. And you, there's a beautiful statue upstairs. Uh, of Hatshepsut, and um, you can see it in the in the first of the galleries. Hatshepsut's name uh, in her cartouche, the throne name uh, you see over here, is Matkara, and uh, there is the Ka figure over here. Then this is the goddess Mat, and there is the disc that is pronounced Ra. So we have over here a figure, and I'll tell you about him in a moment. He uh, is holding it. There are those arms that are pronounced Ka. And then there is the disc that's pronounced Ra. And in the middle is a snake, and that snake is sometimes pronounced Ma'at. So the figure on the right is actually the consort of the queen, um, not her husband. Her husband died, and um, so she takes on this guy who was actually the architect of her tomb uh, and her mortuary temple. 
And somehow, every, even though most of her, the other representations of her have her name hacked out, and almost all the reliefs have her name hacked out, uh, they forgot about this one because they probably didn't understand that this was cryptographic writing. Now, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the architecture and how the architecture also works with the art. What you're looking at are what we call false doors, and almost all tombs have these. And through that uh, little uh, narrow entrance, uh, that little passageway in the center, uh, that is the area where uh, the spirit of the deceased would come forth when you go to the, the cemetery and you put offerings uh, before the false door. Then the spirit comes out uh, and is able to get them back. Uh, now, obviously, spirits don't eat that much. So fortunately for the priests, that's what they survived on. Uh, but what the spirits actually survived on were you're remembering their name. Because when you went there and you saw their name, hopefully you could be able to read it or the priest would tell you where it was, you would think of them. And once you have that in your mind, that meant that they were living uh, and continuing to go on, at least in your memory and probably in other people's memories. But as time went on with the Egyptians, I just showed you a uh, fifth dynasty uh, false door. But when we get to the sixth dynasty, they weren't so sure you would remember what they looked like. So on the left, we have um, the Ka figure of uh, Carr, who's coming out of the ground and coming up to the false door and with his arms out so that you will remember to leave the offerings and you'll also remember what he looked like and so that he will continue on in the afterlife. Uh, on the right, Meruruka uh, from Saqqara uh, is coming forth from the false door to jog your memory and so that you remember exactly what to say. You remember him, and then he lives on in the afterlife uh, as well. Now, there's another, another aspect of, uh, of writing and art, and uh, we have this best uh, illustrated in the exhibition, my, one of my favorite pieces, and um, you get to this after you go through the gallery um, uh, of, the <clears throat> of the pharaohs. And I chose this particular piece because um, of its uniqueness. And I also chose it because it comes from one of the two tombs that I began to excavate in uh, and record in 1990. Um, there are two tombs together. They're called Ihi and Hetep, they are related, we're not quite sure how, but they have many unique things in them, and both of them have these uh, block statues, which uh, is the first time this actually occurs, uh, but then gets picked up as a style. I'm showing them to you because um, there's always a question is, why did they develop these? And I think the reason, and you can see it on both of these, is that every single bit of space is being used for writing so that every part of this figure is, is a surface for the writing. Um, so it really does show how they really pr uh, pretty much uh, considered the writing and the art to be basically performing the same function. But even that, I show it to you uh, even more perhaps because uh, it's about as close as the ancient Egyptians ever got to cubism. And you may laugh, but Gauguin had postcards from Egypt uh, in his studio. And um, Picasso, when he did Les Maisons d'Avignon, 
uh, had um, also had an illustration of an Egyptian wall painting from the, ninth, uh, from the 18th dynasty. So these people who were instrumental in uh, post-impressionism and the development of Cubism, I think uh, had they ever seen this figure, which wasn't uh, excavated at the time, might have been pretty impressed that the ancient Egyptians got this far with the idea of uh, Cubism. With, uh, now, what we're looking at on the left, uh, that is from the, uh, the very first uh, couple of years of the 12th dynasty, so about 1900 BC, and on the right. Very quickly, these get adapted into these, um, uh, the figures that you see on the right-hand side, where the block um, sort of disappears and becomes, um, in some ways, all-enveloping, and the, uh, the surface, the entire surface, gets covered. So you virtually can't see the hands. The feet are just tiny little um, additions to the bottom of the skirt, and uh, there's text uh, all over. As we move on into the New Kingdom, the idea uh, continues, but there's even less and less of the individual and more and more of the text. So on the left-hand side, you don't have no feet. Uh, you also have no indication of the legs at all. And all you see are flat hands on top. So it's almost as if the head has been put on, uh, stuck on the top. On the right-hand side, uh, you have um, a similar kind of representation, but you can just make out the legs uh, that are uh, underneath the draped uh, kilt. When it gets bad, it gets really bad because they just seem to be blob statues, and the head just sort of pops out there, but there's nothing left of the legs, the feet, so you get the heads and the hands. And on the right, pretty much the same thing has happened, and what's important here is that you have the deceased in two dimensions and his wife worshiping a particular god, but then above it is the deceased's head. So, um, you know, the, we've gone almost a complete circle as to from what we actually started with. Developing out of this also uh, are these stelophorous uh, figures or steely-bearing figures. Uh, so instead of uh, being there with their legs up, they're leaning on their legs and they're holding uh, these memorial uh, stones which actually address uh, the gods and are usually uh, uh, hymns to the sun god and showing the piety of the individual. And these were actually real messages that were put along um, uh, the entranceways or the uh, the corridors to the temples, and these would show people uh, who happened to come out on the holidays uh, that so-and-so was a very pious individual. We get them in the front, we get them in the back, and the interesting thing on many of them is that they're never carved away. They actually show you that they're still part of the block. Even these get uh, to be sort of strange, and so we have uh, the one on the left who seems to be trapped in a window, uh, the one on the right who is basically nothing left except a head. Everything else is text. Uh, this one from the 18th Dynasty in the Louvre, it really caught my attention because uh, from the front it looks like we have this very important man, the, the uh, leopard uh, head on there, which you'll remember from the exhibit. If you haven't seen the exhibit, look for it. We've got a video label on that piece, and it explains uh, what it was used for. It's a, a specific kind of priest. But when you look at it from the right, you see that 
there's virtually no part of this that isn't covered by these really large, ungainly hieroglyphs. So uh, what he was more interested in telling you about was the fact that uh, what all the uh, important titles were uh, that he had. Eventually, aside from Steely uh, and aside from the statues themselves, we find out uh, that these develop into uh, what we call Neophorus uh, statuary, and there, that is um, an example of the private people trying to show how religious they were, and they would hold up these shrines of gods. And these pretty much go back to the idea of no writing is even better. So we've gone, I would say at this point, almost full circle. Now, I want to go back to writing per se for a few seconds uh, and talk about um, the the magic of the writing themselves, uh, the writing itself, and um, the Egyptians considered the signs to be magical. In fact, there are no hieroglyphs written below uh, ground in any of the tombs until uh, mid fourth dynasty. They were so afraid that the hieroglyphs might come off the wall and then do damage to the deceased. So it's not until uh, we find one in the Giza Cemetery uh, about um, uh, 2400 BCE that we actually have hieroglyphs below ground. See, above ground is okay because the sarcophagus and the mummy's not there. Below ground, they could do damage. So what did the Egyptians do? When they had to have the hieroglyphs, then they simply destroyed them. Anything that might become um, problematic to them and magically do damage they took apart their limbs. So you see on the left several possibilities. Uh, humans get no, uh, they have no body to do anything. There's, you can't walk, you can't do anything. Lions are cut in half, so it means they can't do anything. Uh, birds uh, have no legs, they can fly, but they can't do anything, they can't land. Uh, snakes either are cut in half or they have no head. Uh, or sometimes uh, there's knives into them. On the right, you can, uh, you can just make out that uh, um, the coiled-up snake has a knife that is cutting off, of, uh, off its head. Now, this is not uh, a new thing. This is from the very earliest period. So we find on the left, you can see that um, the snake's head, right over here, has been uh, cut in half. So uh, the snake can't do any damage. And actually, you're very lucky because this is a horned viper. This is exactly what they look like. They have these little horns. They're about, oh, about this long, and they're fat. And they're sort of cute on the wall, but they are not cute when they're on the ground because when you see them, they're ready to strike, and they jump for the jugular. And you last about three seconds. So you always want to be careful, and, and when you can, you cut off the heads. Um, I have never uh, actually seen one. I've seen one in the Cairo Zoo, but um, I've never seen one in the field, and I'm very happy. Having ste stepped on a cobra once, uh, and I've been told that, that I was lucky with the cobra because the viper would have gotten to me faster. On the, on the, uh, on the right is uh, one of the funerary figurines, and... Um, You'll notice over here, you can see that these birds have no legs. This human has no feet. So here in this 
this funerary figurine that is used for the deceased to help him in the afterlife. It's supposed to uh, answer for the call to forced labor in the afterlife. And uh, here we have uh, the figure that is basically mutilated, and it's mutilated for the purpose of safety. So the idea of um, the importance of hieroglyphs and, and their symbolic uh, importance uh, continued. Now I should tell you that uh, a lot of the damage in ancient Egyptian uh, monuments today was actually done uh, by Coptic Christians uh, who were afraid of the magical properties of the, uh, the ancient uh, Egyptians' art. And so they hacked out uh, the areas around the mouths and the hands and the feet. So um, still, you know, you're thinking about 2,000 years later, they were still trying to destroy them. <clears throat> now, um, there is another aspect that I wanted to talk about, uh, and that is uh, how the hieroglyphs themselves turn into figures, which is very unusual, or at least the idea is sort of unusual. So these are what I call the anthropomorphic uses, the human uh, uses of hieroglyphs. So you'll notice that this is the Ankh sign, and the Ankh sign ha is now has arms, it has legs, and it's wearing a little kilt. And um, this is uh, another sign, was, uh, which means riches or dominion. So you have this alternating uh, life and riches, life and riches, and so on, and they are bringing, they're carrying standards uh, to, the pre, uh, to the prince here. And so they are actually uh, saying that life and riches will come to him. So that's part of it in terms of their, uh, their writing, but they're actually taking part in uh, this ritual. Uh, here, this is a decorative frieze of hieroglyphs, but it actually can be read. So this is the word for life. These are both the words for riches, and this is the word for every. So this means all uh, life and riches will go to this particular king. But you notice, to make sure that the riches don't get away, the Ankh has arms, and he's holding on to them. Uh, here's another example of an Ankh who sprouted arms. And this is the, uh, the piece, which is also upstairs uh, in the gallery. And uh, here you have the Ankh with uh, the arms, and it's holding a fan. And we have a fan upstairs for you to see as well. Um, and he's fanning the king. This actually becomes a symbol for, uh, to uh, indicate that the king is deified. And this is something that we have from the earliest periods. But in this case, you'll notice that the king is acting, and we have uh, with his arms up, the Ankh has his arms up, and the enemy down here has his arms up as well. So each of these, these are three different figures here uh, that are participating in this uh, scene. One of them is actually a hieroglyph. In uh, the first pyramid, uh, the first major pyramid we have in Egypt, the step pyramid, when you go below and you go into one of the chambers, you'll find this seen over here, and I have it drawn over here, and you notice that we have the wasp sign holding uh, a scepter, and then the Ankh signs holding fans. So this dates to about 2700 BCE, so they're doing this idea, uh, and this shows you the, uh, the king is divine with the figures of the Ankh on the right-hand side. In Tutankhamun's fan, very incredible scene. You go on one side, uh, the upper right, and uh, you see uh, the king is 
in a chariot, and he's hunting the ostriches. On the, on the reverse side, on the bottom, he's, uh, they've actually caught them, and you can see the ostriches being carried uh, back. But the scene I have blocked out and enlarged on the left shows you that the Ankh, in this case, not only has arms, it has legs, and it's running after the chariot, holding the very fan that is, that in, in which it's, uh, it's being represented, and uh, it's playing a role as one of the figures, pretty much like the dog running along the side of the fan over here. On the right-hand side, we have another symbol, another hieroglyph. This is the word for endurance, and this comes from um, uh, the, the Temple of Hatshepsut, the 18th Dynasty Temple of Hers. Uh, and it shows you a, another hieroglyph that's being uh, used as uh, a character in a scene. But the one that I think is uh, perhaps most interesting is the one on the left. This is a funerary banquet scene, uh, and you have Sinejim, uh and um, his wife seated, and they're uh, the deceased ones, and you have a servant figure who's come forth, and he has a little fan, or rather elaborate fan, in his hand, and he's moving it back and forth to give him the cool breeze, breeze of the north wind. Interestingly enough, we have actually uh, that part of a spell which talks about bringing to you the cool breeze of the north wind. The word for breeze is this very sail. So you see it over here in the hieroglyphs. Here you see it in a wooden model. So the wooden model is actually a giant hieroglyph, and it's being used to make sure that this individual will have the cool breeze of the north wind so that it'll make his uh, afterlife very pleasant. Uh, more hieroglyphs uh, with arms. Um, over here, this is the Ka figure or the spirit of the king, and uh, you notice it's, uh, it's got arms, and uh, it has a fan, so it shows that the king is divine. Here we have all of these uh, riches, uh, the word for riches, holding on to scepters that they're bringing forth. So the hieroglyphs are again part of the scene. They also become part of decoration. And as you go through the exhibit, take a look at the catalog if you've already seen the exhibit, and try to find how many... Um, how many times you can find things in these artifacts that actually show the hieroglyphs doing something more than um, just being used for uh, <clears throat> spelling things out. For example, on the top right, you have a figure of Bess, and Bess is um, a, a domestic deity and a very protective one. So we have hieroglyphs for the word for protection, and we also have a hieroglyphs for the word endure, so that when you sit on the chair, Bess is going to protect and help you endure. On the, the piece on the, on the left, this is one of the earliest um, beautiful sculptures that we have in Egypt from about um, the, more than 30, uh, 3100 B.C., and uh, what it is, it's a combination of two signs. One of them is ka, the upraised arms, and the other one is ankh. Uh, and that uh, this is a dish that's made out of a stone called schist, and uh, you would put water uh, offerings in it, and uh, you would give it to the spirit that's called the ka, and that would cause it to live. So actually, that bowl on the left is um, an ancient Egyptian sentence. Um, hieroglyphs can also be amulets. 
I'm sure a lot of you people know what an Ankh is, and if you've seen the exhibit, you certainly do. Um, and I'm sure in the shop you can get one of these or something like it, and it would ensure that you would have uh, life eternal. And here uh, you can see um, this is a late period Nubian uh, figure who was wearing this incredible uh, Ankh amulet. And what does it mean? It means he, not royal, is going to have uh, eternal life, or at least he wished for it. There are all sorts of things you could wish for. The hieroglyph on the left is endurance. This is from Tut's treasure. So uh, he wanted to, to have endurance. And on it, to ensure it, there's a spell from the Book of the Dead, which would ensure that he would endure forever. On the right-hand side, we have uh, a whole, uh, these are all bits of jewelry from the Middle Kingdom. And each one of them is a hieroglyph. So for example, you wear this, and you're asking for joy. That's what you've got over here. You, air, you wear this and you're asking for life and protection. You wear these, this necklace, and that's, you're asking, if you're a woman, you're asking for beauty, and if you're a man, you're asking to be handsome. I know this is going to be hard, uh, but this is um, one of the figures during uh, the time of Tutankhamun, and you can see this is, um, it's hard to see, this is an anklet on a statue, and it shows the ancient Egyptian women uh, wore anklets, and in this case, it's life and riches that she wants in that anklet. Here you can see this is a priest of Thoth bringing um, Inher Chau to before the god Osiris, and uh, hanging on Inher Chau's arm is this same thing that Tutankhamun had in gold, but he has it in um, in a less precious material, but it's the word for endurance. And just to help him out, the priest is carrying the word for life, uh, hoping that he will uh, be successful before Osiris and go on for eternal life. Tutankhamun had um, bracelets, uh, a lot of bracelets, so this one on the top was used to ensure that he would always have good health, because that is the hieroglyph, that eye, the eye of Horus, is the hieroglyph for the word to be healthy. So this is sort of like the copper bracelet uh, that many people wear uh, nowadays. And you see that uh, this is something not only royal to use, but you see on the bottom also private people would use them as well. One of my favorites, I hope you can make it out, is the hippopotamus deity. Uh, well, she's also part hippopotamus, uh, part uh, ape, and then in the back has a crocodile tail. Um, but she was uh, another domestic deity, and she was very helpful in childbirth uh, and uh, for pregnancy. Uh, but she was also a protective goddess, and she's leaning on the hieroglyph for protection. So she's identified with protection. It's part of her statue. And over here, you see that same sign on a boat. This is a papyrus boat, and it's in the papyrus marshes. By the way, this is the earliest example of gloves ever shown, so sort of interesting. Uh, but I'm talking really about the, the word for protection. Why is there a hieroglyph next to gloves um, and sandals? It doesn't really make any sense until you realize that that is made out of reeds, and that was a life preserver. And so if someone fell off the boat, you toss the word for protection to them, and of course they would be able to float to safety. 
Uh, hieroglyphs uh, are carried by uh, kings uh, and gods to show their divinity. And uh, during the reign of uh, Akhenaten, you'll find that the sun disk has rays that come down to the nose of the king and queen only, and they offer him uh, and her an ankh to indicate that they are chosen people. More staffs you see here, uh, the god Ta, having uh, a tripartite one. It has the ankh for life, the word jed for uh, endurance, and then was for riches, and that's what he will offer the king. Nile uh, deities here, and they're offering abundance through life. Uh, from Tutankhamun's tomb, we have some really incredible pieces, uh, and you'll see the hieroglyphs here are basically uh, for decorative purposes. Uh, there are hieroglyphic um, messages uh, that you can read in these parts, but the parts over here are all uh, for decorative purposes, despite the fact that they can be read, so they do double duty. Um, a gift to, um, uh, to the in-laws of Amenhotep III, you see on the left. Uh, and again, the same kind of hieroglyphs, uh, the, uh, the Ankh and the Was, life and riches, uh, are on the fretwork down here. And uh, this is part of uh, one of the outer shrines of Tutankhamun with this incredible um, open work. And again, uh, endurance and protection. And in fact, that's what they did. They, they were to make sure that um, they would protect the sarcophagus and, and the three inner coffins uh, of Tutankhamun, and that's precisely what they wound up doing. But even windows and palaces, we have the one on the left at Penn, uh, and the light would shine through here and here, and there would be protection and endurance here, the hieroglyphs for endurance again, and uh, over here in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, light would shine through and life and endurance uh, would bathe uh, people who were inside the temple. Not a new process. You can see it already in the Third Dynasty with the Jed sign in the upper, uh, uh, upper part of the temple complex, uh, so endurance. And then in the lower part, uh, below ground, endure again. And that's what tombs are supposed to be. So you have hieroglyphs being offered uh, from a, a, a goddess that you see over here to Ramses I's uh, second uh, favorite wife, Nefertari, so that she would have uh, life eternal. And then on the right side, I don't know how visible this is, but you have two deities, um, and they are uh, pouring water over Hatshepsut, who has been hacked out, as I said, that would be natural. But instead of wavy lines indicating the water, you actually have hieroglyphs, and these are the hieroglyph Ankh. So the waters are bringing her life because they're the uh, purification waters. Now going back to, um, I only have a few more, but going back to this pectoral, which is upstairs, I wanted to just go over it uh, because it looks like a nice scene uh, of a king, and this is Eminem Haight, whose name occurs in the cartouche, but you see it looks like a mirror image, one side uh, of the other, and in fact, that's what it is. But there are other hieroglyphs in here, 
and there's hieroglyphs here, which is the name of the king. But over here, it's one of his titles or epithets, which is uh, the good god, lord of the two lands, and um, the one who smites all of the uh, foreign lands, which you can read over here. But you actually have the king smiting the enemy. So the king is actually... Um, uh, taking the place of the verb. So this is really a sentence on both sides. And, it, uh, and it, what it, the sentence actually says is, Amenem hate, the good God, the Lord of the two lands, Lord of the, um, the foreign lands, smites, and in this case it's this particular enemy. And so we have him, uh, the king himself, actually functioning as a hieroglyph to smite. And so this really uh, means a little bit more when you, uh, you read the label upstairs and you find out this was worn by a woman so um, to honor um, uh, the pharaoh. So this is run by, worn by a royal woman, Mereret, and uh, to on, honor Eminem hate. And um, this is uh, another example of that connection between art and writing. Another one, sort of three-dimensional, is... Um, uh, the ancient Egyptian word for mirror is actually Ankh. And so this is a mirror case from Tutankhamun's tomb, and it takes the shape of the word for mirror. But Ankh is also the word for life. And so uh, you have a mirror, which is a reflection of life, and then this connection of meaning and also function is pretty incredible. One of the last things I wanted to show you was that you don't have to be a decorator in ancient Egypt because they tell you exactly how they want things to go. Hard to tell in this one, but it's one of the early exam one of the examples. And here is where I'm going to be talking about in just a moment. And uh, this is the ancient Egyptian hieroglyph right in the middle here for support. And this is the word to unify. And so you're wondering what would be in here. This, by the way, is Tutankhamun's throne. Never travels unfortunately. Uh, those of you who saw the exhibit in the 80s may remember this piece, which is the stool of Tutankhamun. So you can see that same thing right over here, and that's the word for unify. So that is uh, basically what the king actually does. He unifies the, the lands of Upper and Lower Egypt. These, that's the, uh, the reference to the two lands. In legendary times, there, were, uh, there was a northern and a southern part of the country that the first king united. So you expect to see the papyrus plants on one side and uh, the lotus plants or the lily on the other. And that's what you get here on this end, which is, well, I'm going to tell you in just a second which end it is. On this side, you get the papyrus ones, and on this side, you get the lily ones. So the papyrus refer to the north, the lily refers to the south, so when you have the chair, then you know exactly where to put it in your apartment. The same thing actually went on uh, with this particular piece, so the decorative fretwork that you can see down here would originally have said uh, the, the, the one who unifies Upper and Lower Egypt, but you also have... Uh, text on the back part as well, and this is um, the um, the god Hek who is holding uh, the word for years, and um, this is a hundred the word for hundred thousands, uh, or the number hundred thousands is the frog. So you have the god offering Tutankhamun a reign of uh, more than a hundred thousand years. Well, so far we've got to over uh, 3,300. I don't know if he's going to make it to 100,000. Um, 
One of the, um, I think, most complicated uh, ones is um, this example also from the 80s show. And um, you'll just notice something that most people don't get to see, and I certainly didn't see it until much later, was that you've got two breasts uh, uh, that are indicated on uh, the central part of this figure. So this vase itself takes the form of the hieroglyph for the unification um, of, and here we have the north, uh, the north and the south. So and we have the goddess Hathor here. So Hathor helps the unification of the north and the south uh, and is the support who brings life and riches. So we have a three-dimensional sentence here again. Not only in chairs, not only in reliefs and sculpture, it also happens in architecture. Every time you go into an ancient Egyptian temple, it's a cosmos. The entrance is the east, even if it doesn't face the east, and it is to represent um, the eastern horizon, and when the sun uh, is in that, uh, that is actually, the, what's on top here is the ancient Egyptian word achet, and that is the word for horizon, and every Egyptian uh, entranceway actually takes the same form. Akhenaten uh, took it one step further, and again, this is something else represented upstairs. He not only used it for art and uh, hieroglyphs for uh, intermingling them with art and archite uh, with uh, with sculpture and writing, he also chose his capital city called Achet Aten, which meant horizon of the sun disk, precisely because when he drove, uh, he sailed by this area, he saw the way the mountains came down, then came up, and it looked just like that hieroglyph, and the sun was rising in this area, and he said, this is where I will build my capital city, and I will never leave here, and in fact, his burial place is deep in this crevice. So he intended to be uh, to rise day after day in the east uh, with, uh, with the sun and uh, with the, um, the focus of his new uh, religion. Here are some other examples of uh, some of the odd things that he did. And uh, this was all predicated on the importance of the sun god and what that really meant to him. But that in itself is another lecture. Um, but if you, uh, I hope that I haven't uh, made this um, <clears throat> maybe a little bit too long, but it's something that I'm very interested in, and I'd be happy to answer any questions if you, uh, if you might have them. The lights are on again, so at least I can see people. Yeah. We have handheld mics either side, if you don't mind using them. The uh, piece that you were involved in excavating where you went to get the camera, did somebody draw a representation of the necklace? Since I take it, since you didn't have the camera, there was no photographic evidence. It, uh, one of my students was there. It took uh, less than 10 seconds. The minute it got out of the, uh, out of the, um, the surdab, uh, it was exposed to the air, and it, uh, it just went like that, that the rest of the paint didn't come off was quite remarkable. But I've talked to people since then, and they said it depends on what they, what, um, uh, what they used in the paint. Uh, some of it is more stable than others, and, and this was all green. I mean, that we saw. So I take it that this is something that 
happens, I mean, how often does it happen that when pieces come out that this, this occurs? Well, probably the eeriest experience that I've ever had, and one that um, I would like to have again, perhaps, was um, another time I was, um, I was working in Giza, and uh, uh, Zahi was not around, and uh, his uh, workman uh, came over and said to me, we've discovered uh, something, and we'd like you to look. And I said, well, what did you discover? And they, he said, we discovered a mummy. Well, I mean, you know, Egypt has lots of mummies, so I, I wasn't that uh, excited about it, and I was on a ladder. And I was copying it, tracing an inscription, and to go down and go back up again. So I said to one of my students, if you want to go, go over there and, and, and make a report and tell me what you see. So they came back, and they said, it's really odd. And I said, well, you know, late period mummies, which is what you almost always will find these days, um, you know, can have very garish colors. And in fact, Zahi discovered uh, the Valley of the Golden Mummies, and there you know, were, over, I guess, about 2,000 of them. And, and, um, and the student said, uh, well, it's, I don't know, it sort of looks different. So I said, all right. And I uh, trudged down, went over there. And you have to, you know, this is maybe, what, uh, half an hour, 20 minutes time had elapsed. And I had to lower, it was a square area, it was just a shaft, and I had to lower myself down and then jump, uh, I guess, about four feet. And I barely made it. It was a little bit wider than this. And when I got down there, there was um, a little opening that I had to crawl through. And the minute that you got down there and you put your head in there, you knew it was a different atmosphere. It just smelled, tasted. It was totally different. And I was shocked because it was a woman lying on her side looking at me. And it was, you know, I took a deep breath. And uh, as I looked at it, she still had the, her, her diadem on her head, and she still had the necklace, and the body was disintegrating as we watched her. And they would not let me take photographs because um, no, no, no orders had been left to do that. And um, it wasn't, uh, wasn't until the next day that it actually got taken out, and I asked them not to take it out because there was no way you could take it out without uh, destroying it, but the conservator could not work. I mean, it was was close to 100 degrees at the time. And so, you know, it was one of those cases where you just had to get it out. Uh, but it's now in the Cairo Museum. Uh, but it was, I guess it was, you know, that magical time where I just was removed from everything and just saw her the way I think she meant uh, to be seen. So I take it that they are looking to try to... Uh, use methods to I, I know that things are always evolving and trying to preserve things but I take it sometimes there's just no way to preserve some of these things sometimes uh, sometimes there really isn't you know you don't have a choice I mean you can all, it depends on where you are I mean in Giza Saqqara you're close to laboratories but if you're working as we were in Bersha which is in the middle of the country and we had uh, we had a flatbed truck that would pick us up once we took a um, you know three rowboats across the Nile I mean if you found something what are you going to do with it and if you got sick what were you going to do we also Thank you. It sounds just fascinating. Um, my question is, uh, of the birth name and the uh, throne name, uh, where did they get each of these names, and how were they used differently in the representations and the hieroglyphs and the, um, the representations? What a great question. Um, 
the the birth name was given without a cartouche to uh, um, the princes uh, and the princesses. Um, most of the time, um, until we get to the 19th dynasty, princes really are virtually non-existent. You have no record of them uh, because you know, infant mortality rate was very high. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, because of that, uh, you never knew who was going to become prince. So what happens is that um, once they go through coronation, uh, they are uh, have retroactive deifications, what I call it. I've just written an article on this. Um, and they get the title, the son of Ray. That gives them deification so that their birth name then has an element in it that is divine. And then they get uh, a separate name which is used uh, for... Um, to refer to them on the throne. So they, uh, if you're talking uh, about the, uh, the king doing something which is not necessarily official, you use the birth name. Uh, if it's a decree, you use uh, the other name. But many times you'll see both of them together, but there was, um, they're distinctly different. Nesutbiti, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, that is then followed by the coronation name. Sa-Ra, the son of Ray, is then followed by the, the birth name. Uh, and that is not absolutely followed until the 12th dynasty. Up until then, it's sort of uh, back and forth. But it's a great question. Nobody has ever asked me about that. Any other questions? Yeah. I always wanted to know, oops, if they wrote right or left-handed, or does that matter doing hieroglyphics? <laughs> You know, um, I'm left-handed, um, and I was one of those kids who was um, uh, told, you know, uh, you, have to, you have to learn how to do things with your right hand because it's very important, uh, and left-handed people have all sorts of problems. Um, left-handed people are also, you know, if you, if you, if you take a look at the... Um, and maybe it's because they have to do things uh, backwards most of the time, uh, and they struggle, so they actually do quite well. But, you know, sinister comes from uh, sinistra, which means left, so that's a bad thing. So being left-handed was not so good, um, but in the United States, um, uh, we have a left-handed president. Clinton was left-handed. Uh, George Bush's father was left-handed. So uh, maybe there are some good things about being left-handed. Um, how could we know whether they're left-handed or right-handed in Egypt? Uh, when you're looking at um, representations in two dimensions, depends on which way you're, uh, the, uh, you're supposed to be looking at them because they'll either have two left hands or two right hands. So you can't really tell. The only way, and this is, again, another good question, in, uh, in the exhibit we have scribal statues, and you have to, uh, there's one with a baboon on his back, you take a look, there are two forms of scribes. They're either reading or they're writing. The writing ones have their hands poised like this, and there should be a pen in it, but the pen is no longer intact. There have, I've never found one that has their left hand poised to write. So my guess is that the idea of the left maybe being not so great was um, something that was ancient Egyptian. The right usually refers uh, to the right bank, and that's what the east is, and that's where uh, regeneration is, so that would be positive. 
Uh, the left is um, the West, and that's where death is. So maybe that's where that, uh, the negative side of that comes through. But I've always, being left-handed, I've always looked at the scribal statues and thought, one day I'm going to find one that was left-handed. But there aren't any texts about it either, I'm sorry to say. Just as an addendum to that, there are actually Ptolemaic, there's one Ptolemaic papyrus that people think was written by a left-handed person because it was so awkwardly written. Um, and the ink is kind of, well, the ink is kind of smudged and you have to figure, um, they think it's an Egyptian person writing in Greek. And it's kind of smudged because they're writing with uh, a pen, a calligraphic pen, as opposed to uh, sort of a pencil-like thing, which is what you would normally write with if you were Greek. And so the ink is kind of smudged at the side. So people think, oh, this must be because he's left-handed and he's trying to write like this. You have to understand that most Egyptian material is written from, <coughs> you know, uh, in hieratic is written from right to left. So that you would then assume if that, uh, that is correct, that kind of an observation is correct, uh, that anyone who was right-handed would smudge everything ancient Egyptian, which is not the case. So it would seem to me that's probably not an accurate uh, point of view. And most, and not, I would say, um, half of the people I know who are left-handed do not write upside down and don't smear. They turn the work around. And so I think the Egyptians, after 3,000 years, might have been as smart. So I think it's probably a right-handed person making that observation. <laughs> Any others? Well, I hope that if you haven't seen the exhibit, you'll go to see it and you'll uh, find it, uh, I know you'll find it rewarding and I hope that some of the things I told you about, you'll look for it. And if you've seen the exhibit, now you have another reason uh, to go look at it again. And if you're ever in Philadelphia, come down and see uh, on the University of Pennsylvania campus, the Penn Museum. Um, I'm curator there and we have 40,000 Egyptian artifacts. And uh, actually, altogether, we have one million, over one million artifacts. So there's lots of things to see, and lots of mummies, too. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>